Hey, this is Kyle Turner, the lead pastor of Hillsong, Kansas City. Welcome to our podcast. We hope that it inspires you, encourages you, and most importantly, helps you get closer to Jesus. Enjoy the message. Come on, let's give God a big shot of praise this morning. Amen. How many of you are so grateful that you're here in the house of God this morning? How many of you had, oh, wait, okay, wait before you clap. How many of you had, like, a crazy week. Anybody in here? Okay. How many of you had the best week of your life? Not too many. I don't know. So that's why I just think sometimes praise is a sacrifice. And I think this morning that it would be really great. Plaza, you as well. Let's give God a big shout of praise this morning. Come on. Pray for who he is. Amen. Amen. So good. Thank you, God. So good. Go ahead and give someone a high five and you can be seated this morning. How good was worship this morning? Let's give the band a hand. That was fantastic. And I believe right now we're linked into Plaza. And so let's, uh, here up in the north, let's give a big welcome to Plaza. Just so good to see everybody this morning. You could be anywhere this morning and you chose to come on out to church. And uh, it's the best decision you could have made. I don't know if it's your first weekend or you've been coming from the inception but I love what Pastor Kyle said he said how God can take ordinary things and make them holy I think that's a profound statement uh, not only for our lives but like the room you're sitting in right now here or plaza it's pretty amazing but I want to before I even starting my message I want to give a huge shout out to your pastors Pastor Kyle and Pastor Liz because I don't know if you guys realize, but you have been gifted with incredible, incredible. They're like pure gold. They're the real deal. They're, they walk in humility. They're incredibly gifted as leaders. And they're pastors. They love pastoring. And, and it's rare in today in a celebrity culture to have pastors that aren't about the celebrity. They're all about seeing your lives empowered, seeing you grow in Jesus. So I think we should honor them this morning and give them a hand. Yeah. So, so good to be here. I guess you're in the middle of a series called In Love. And so I asked Pastor Kyle and Liz if I could just go ahead and continue on it. Because I love, I love the whole idea of relationships. And, um, but before we start, I'm going to show you a picture of my family. Um, this is my husband and I. We've been married 40 years. I know. And we are, are alive to tell the story, we didn't kill each other and end up in prison, and that in itself is a miracle. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but uh, to the left of me is my daughter Jessica. She worked for a number of years for Nick and Chris Kane with A21 and Propel. She's just recently launched out in her own business. She also is single. So I didn't mention this at the, at the women's night. How great was Friday night, girls? Is that amazing? Because uh, there was only girls in the room, but she is available. That's the whole reason I came, just to let you know that. Next to her is my son. He is also available. I know, they hate it when I do this. But you can text Pastor Kyle later if you're interested. I'm just kidding. And uh, so my daughter, Jessica, then Evan is a senior at Southeastern University. He's graduating with a degree in organizational leadership, coming home and being on our team. Next to him is our daughter, Gabby. She is our creative pastor at our church. We pastor a church in Washington, D.C., Capital City Church. Uh, we have been there over 25 years, and we are so grateful for the honor we get to be building the house of God in the nation's capital because who, anybody with me, it's kind of cray cray right now, right? <laughs> We're just glad to be there. And then next to my husband is my son-in-law and my daughter who are now our favorite children. 
because they just gave birth to our first grandchild, Olivia, right? Is she the most cute thing? I mean, I, that's my favorite role. My children were great, but she is perfect. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, as I said, we've been married 40 years, and I, we could write a book on how not to do relationships and how not to do marriage because of all the mistakes. But one thing we did do from the very beginning was we took the exit doors off and we said, we're not ever leaving this relationship. We are in this. We may, we may kill each other. It may be difficult, but we're not taking the exit doors off. And so, um, but here, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't know what we were entering into. In fact, here's a picture of us. This was our first year of marriage. I know, right? <laughs> it's the funniest picture ever. It's like a hundred years ago and that that was us and you know when we got married we're, we're so in love we didn't know like you know and when you're dating somebody you just have you do behavior modification because you want to get that you want to get the first date you want to keep the second date and then you want to get married right so behavior modification is pretty much all that other person sees when you want to get the job you do behavior modif you know how to act correctly right until Let's go show you. I want to show you. This is what it really looks like. It's like you only see the top of the iceberg, but you don't really see what's underneath. So my husband and I have been married a month, and he's like, wait a minute. I only met the top part. What is this underneath? And your, your boss has hired you, and he's like, what is happening? I didn't know that was there or whatever in any roommate situation, whatever relationships you've entered into, there's a whole lot underneath. In fact, I think some of us probably carry some baggage. Maybe not here in Kansas. In Washington, D.C., there's a ton of baggage. In fact, I think it may look like this video I want to show you this morning. Can you put the music on with that? Because that's the whole deal. Wait, there you go. gets worse <laughs> and you know you enter into any relationship whether it's marriage or dating or roommates or co-workers whatever that looks like and you're waiting you you want it to sound like you know remember the Titanic the thing it's just beautiful but you don't realize the Titanic's going down <laughs> underneath you and and if we're not self-aware we don't realize what we're actually bringing into the relationship you know and I think that we have to be aware of our relational identity does anybody know what I'm talking about um, and so, for instance, uh, my identity, and even in the beginning of the marriage, my identity until I got married, uh, my identity was the position of daughter and sister. That was who I was. And then once I got married, then I had a different position, and that was wife. And then when we had children, I was mother. Um, and, and then as... I became pastor, and then uh, recently I completed my master's degree, so now I'm a master, just kidding, <laughs> a student, and I'm a friend, and I'm a neighbor, but each of those positions, um, those positions are specific to, the identity is specific to that position, 
Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? So I can tell you all about my position in life, and you may only know a portion like the top of that iceberg, uh, but oftentimes if we're not careful, we take a position into a relationship, and then our relational equity is based on our position when I think, first of all, we need to know that we have to have a healthy identity to have healthy relationships, okay? And our identity, if it is often based on how we were raised or our past experiences, good or bad and all that, we'll get into that in a minute. But if we're not careful, we will base our relationships solely on our position. And that's a weighty way to walk in and carry a relationship. Because I think perhaps God wants us basing our relational identity on our position, not our posture. I'm sorry, not on our position, but on our posture. Everybody say, not on our position, but on our posture. And I think just to start, I have to tell you that my husband and I have been married 40 years, but we still, we don't have a perfect marriage. We have worked for a healthy marriage. And there's a big difference. So I can tell you, just full disclosure, last week, uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, we were sitting down to dinner, and I was sharing with my husband something that I felt like God had shown me, and I was so excited about it. And, and so then, because our personalities are so different, he looked at me and he said, he started giving me some input that I wasn't asking for. Does anybody know what I'm talking about in here? And he starts giving me the input on what he, how I should present that or how I should talk about it. And, and in that moment, I didn't want input. I just wanted him to listen. So I did what nobody in this room ever does. I did the silent eye roll. Do you know what that means? Like in my head, I'm rolling my eyes. And I said, really, Dennis? I don't, I don't need that information right now. I just need you to listen. Rolling my eyes in my head. To which he very humbly responded, Okay, okay. He said, it just sounds a little prideful. To which I responded again with a silent eye roll. Really? That's not prideful. <laughs> Full disclosure. Because I am, I've been in the ministry long enough to know this. That what will hinder God moving in this room more than anything else is my ego. Wow. And for me to tell you what you should do without saying me too... You can hear all the stuff I'm talking about, but unless God lands on the words, it's just words. And so I, as well as you, still in this for 40 years, I'm still learning this. Relational identity. I think the scripture has a bit to say about this. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. We're going to unpack this a bit. You can look at the screen. If you have a phone, you can open it. But what I would encourage you to do, like I do our church in Washington, D.C., is take notes, okay? Because you may not need that right now. We could be out in the lobby. You could give me all of your cues for the perfect relationship. But somewhere, I think you might need what I'm going to share this morning. And it would be great to go back to it because if you're like me, I can't even remember which child I'm calling on the telephone half the time. And so I love this. It starts off with James John, and John, who are Zebedee's sons, come up to Jesus. And, and actually, this whole portion of Scripture cracks me up. It is so funny because it's just James and John. So just if you just know this, James and John and Peter were in a family business. They were Zebedee's sons back in that day, in that culture. Family businesses would go on for centuries. They had a fishing business. And it cracks me up that James and John go to Jesus by themselves. We have no idea where Peter is. 
They just go to Jesus by themselves. John already considers himself pretty special. In fact, when he writes his book, he talks about himself. He defines himself as the one who Jesus loved the most. I mean, I think that's pretty healthy identity, right? I don't know. So it's just the two of them, and they pull Jesus apart quietly, and they, they just quietly, when nobody else is listening, and they say, hey, 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 we want to ask you something. So we're going to pick it up here again. They said, teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. And Jesus responds. He goes, what is it? I'll, I'll see what I can do. What, what, I'll see if I can arrange it. And they said, so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor and your glory. One of us on your right, one of us on your left. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you capable of drinking the cup I drink, of being baptized in the baptism I'm about to be plunged into? <laughs> sure, why not? It's like they're being invited to a pool party and a cup of Starbucks. They have no idea what Jesus is asking them. Sure, why not? We could do that. And Jesus says to them, no, come to think of it. You're going to end up drinking this cup, and you're going to end up being baptized in my baptism. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. There are other arrangements for that. So he doesn't elaborate at first, but he just talks about it. Now, first of all, you, you have to consider this as hilarious. And, and while I've read this scripture many times, I'm like, whoa, that would took a lot. It took a lot of brass to be able to go up to Jesus and say, we want the, I would never, ever, ever do that. But I do. I may not verbalize it, but internally, like I post something on social media, I'd like to see at least 4,000 likes on it because I want somebody to honor me. I, I want them to see my importance. I want them to see my value when I'm talking to you. I want you to hear what I'm saying and be like, the hallelujah chorus just went off and heaven's open and I hear what you're saying. I, I want to feel valued. I want to feel influential. I want to feel like I'm being noticed. I want the promotion internally. I may not verbalize it, but internally. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think probably all of us in this room, maybe perhaps at some time or another, unless the holiness of God is so much greater in Kansas City, because you're in the heart of the, okay, move on, Donna. So then it continues on, it says, but when the other 10 heard this conversation, <laughs> they lost their tempers with James and John. Okay, this is a completely different picture than Da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper, where they're all quaffed and they're sitting there calmly and it feels like they have all like Jesus character. Do you know what I'm No, they lost their minds when this happened. Is that hilarious to you? It is to me. It's like reality TV. Like, I, you pay money to, to watch this on TV, but this was happening. They lost their minds. Why? Because they hear that John, and what's his name? Good. Just checking. <laughs> that they wanted the highest places. Why did they lose their mind? Because they probably internally wanted the same thing. And they couldn't believe that these two went and had the brass to go up there and do it. They've lost their mind. It didn't just mean they were upset, but there's quarreling going on. And I love what it says next. Jesus got them together to settle things down. This is like an Italian family reunion. Like they are, like he's pulling them back together. Like they're over there arguing. They're like, can you believe them? And they're like pointing fingers. And Jesus has to settle them down. 
I love that. Because sometimes we can look at the Bible stories and we're like, you know, if I was as holy as they were, then I, could, I would never suffer. Or, but listen, every one of us in this room and at Plaza, maybe Plaza's holier than here, I don't know. I don't know, guys. But I'm just thinking that every one of us in this room at some point or another struggle internally with some of this because we want to be seen, we want to be valued, we want to be loved. But it continues on that he settles things down and he said, you have observed how godless rulers throw their weight around and when people get a little power how quickly it goes to their heads it's not going to be that way with you guys though whoever wants to be great must become a everybody say it with me and whoever and i know i know that serve that word servant is so 80s right it's like so old but yet it's timeless because this is something jesus spoke two thousand years ago he said whoever wants to be the first among you must be your slave that is what the son of man has done he came to serve he came to serve not to be served and then to give away his life as an exchange for many who are held hostage so a little context to this because this is like every time i read this i'm convicted i'm like right i should just be serving people but just to give this a little context Jesus had just been walking with this guy. The verses just, about, just before this, Jesus had just been telling his closest guys this, this, the truth about where he's headed in a few days. And he's telling them, hey, guys, in a few days, the Romans, they're going to accuse me of some things. They're going to arrest me. They're going to torture me. And I'm actually going to die on a cross and then be raised again. Now, he's just told them the whole redemption story, what he's going to have to face in a few, few days. And yet the response of these two guys, I mean, it sounds a little like, really? Did you not hear what Jesus just said? They're like, okay, great. Sorry that's happening to you, but we just want to be on your right and your left one. I think perhaps it's human nature that when we start feeling like a transition is happening, or we start feeling like change is happening, or we start feeling like we don't really know what the future holds, is that we kind of sometimes become a little unbalanced in our view, in our relationships. In fact, this is the third time in the scriptures that this story is told. And I have found, I, I just, I just uh, like really, 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 really learned this in school. I can't remember what it's called. But when the scripture mentions the same thing over and over and over again, it's because God really has a point to be made because it's obviously something that's very common to all of us. It's something that we all deal with on a regular basis. So there's these two other stories, same exact scenario. Jesus talks about how he's going to be beaten. He's going to go to the cross, all the same thing. And they all respond the same way. Three times in the scriptures, it's the same exact story. And I say this, to be honest with you, because I believe it's a common temptation that all of us have that we oftentimes will base our relationships on our position. So the two other times that they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus' response is basically the same. I want to read it to you. It's in Mark 9.35. It says, so you want first place? You want first place? Is position where you find your value? Go ahead and take the last place. It's so, so, so opposite, right? He said, be the servant of all. And then again, he dresses their positional identity. He's dealing with positional identity here because they're basing their identity on their position. Turn to somebody next to you and say, it's obviously about posture. Go ahead. 
God, you're positioned next to me for a reason. Sit up straight. Put on your seatbelt. This message is for you, not me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. And the second time that this, this shows up in the scriptures in Luke chapter 9, verse 4, is, and Jesus says, whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. You become great by accepting, not asserting. Accepting, not asserting. It's your spirit, not your size. And he's not talking about dress size or pants size. He's talking about the size of your influence. It's not about the size of your position. It's not about the size of your bank account. It's not the size, size of your academic endeavors. It's not about the size of your family history. It's not about the size of your present location. What he's saying is it is about what determines your value and your identity is not your position. He wants us to understand this. That's not what makes the difference. So Jesus is saying over and over again that to the disciples, because here, here's the thing, is the disciples felt entitled to a position, not realizing that they weren't entitled to a position, but they had been entrusted with a posture. There's a big difference, and this is all about relationship. So I love this as we continue on um, in looking at this, that in that culture, you may not realize this, but all value and influence was based on the financial gain or you couldn't really be a leader unless you were prosperous in that culture. And, and these guys were fishermen. So they were at the very bottom of the totem pole when it comes in the social economic strat. stat. And so they had a little bit of um, influence following Jesus. And now they're aware of the fact that the guy they're following who is the influencer is leaving, and so they want to secure their influence. And so they say to him, uh, we want to be on the right and the left because you're leaving, and we don't know what it's going to look like. We may go back to the bottom of the totem pole again. And we have found our value in our position. And Jesus is like, you have missed the boat, that your value is not found in your position. Your value is found in your posture. Amen. So Jesus is introducing a radically different model. It was groundbreaking in that culture. I, so I like, wish that I was in this conversation. Anybody else ever read the Bible and you're like, man, I would have loved to have been there when Jesus like, was like, come on, guys, get it together. So Jesus is saying, again, I want, I want you to get this, that your identity is not based on your position, but your posture. And I would say that in that culture, that was important. But in our culture, it's just as important. Yeah. With social media, we can see, you know, you've heard the phrase, we see people's highlight reels, but we never see their behind the scenes. And, and so oftentimes we can feel less valued because my highlight scene, my highlight reel doesn't look like yours. And so your influence looks greater than mine. You have 4,000 million people on your social media, and everybody's liking everything you do. And so I feel like you have more value than I do because I'm basing my value according to the world's standards. So what do I need to do to assert myself? And it's the same as in relationships. Our relationships oftentimes can be based on our positions and not our posture. So you have to understand this basic principle. We're going to get into relationships in a minute. But you have to understand this because otherwise every relationship you step into will be unbalanced. Healthy relational identity is based on posture, not position. 
Jesus said, I didn't come to be great. I came to serve, to be the servant of all. I came to serve, not to be served. Shoot. Mic drop. Right? Wow. And I can say that with my mouth, but oftentimes in my heart, I have to be careful that in my relationships, I'm not living entitled because I've based my identity on my position with my husband. In fact, what Jesus was saying in this portion of scripture, the former way of finding your relational identity was positional relationships, they're transactional. In other words, it's you owe me. So the disciples are saying, Jesus, we have followed you for three years. We've been faithful to you. We gave up homes. We gave up money. We gave up everything. So you owe us a position. How often I think through my life, through the 40 years of my marriage, that I have said to my husband, I've cleaned the house. I took care of the kids. I've done everything you've needed me to do. Now you owe me. See, if, we, if our relationships, the title of this message, by the way, is you owe me. If, you, if we base... <laughs> Turn to somebody next to you. You owe me a steak dinner right after this service. If we live our relationships on a you owe me, then we are living entitled. You, I am entitled to what you should give me because I have been doing A, B, C, and D. My position, it becomes a transaction. And to be honest with you, in my marriage, I don't want my marriage to be transactional. It will never grow. It stays stymied. It stays stuck. If your family with your parents, your children, or your coworkers, or even your boss, if it's transactional, it, it gets stuck, and you will never, ever, ever be happy. You will never, ever, ever walk with the joy of the Lord because you will constantly feel like you're less than, constantly feel like you're short because you will never get what's owed to you because it's all about your position. But if instead, the new thing that Jesus was introducing was this, that relational, rela relational, what is this? Did you guys fix that for me? Oh, no. Okay. Sorry. I put that in there. Relational relationships. Okay. Everybody say that. I guess that's what it is. Relational. Relationship. Say it four times quick. <laughs> Just kidding. Relational relationships of serving is transformational because I understand that now it's not what my husband owes me. But I have been entrusted with a relationship with this man by God. And so every time that I serve him, I'm transformed into the image of Christ because that's the character of Christ. Jesus says, I came to serve, not to be served. So I'm being transformed into the image of Christ. So when I want more peace, I can't get more peace by transactions. More peace comes when more of Jesus fills my life and I become more like him because he is peace. If I want more hope, it's not transactional relationships. I'm not going to assert myself and be like, give me hope. No, it's when I become more like Jesus because he is hope. Pretty soon anxiety doesn't take over my life. Y'all need to listen quicker. You're listening, way, you're listening way too slow. There are no perfect relationships. Turn to your neighbor and say, no perfect relationships. The only way to get greatness or significance is serving. The you owe me life is so painful to live. Now, why, why is it so difficult to, why do we live you owe me? I do this all the time. I find myself doing this all the time. Like I was just in Starbucks yesterday. They were taking forever. 
I'm like, look, I paid for this cup of coffee. You owe me to get it to me, aunt. Nobody else in here? Is anybody else a coffee drinker? Right? Okay, here's, here's what I want you to know. I am Sicilian. I'm incredibly intense. I've already had four cups of coffee. So, Plaza, maybe you're ready for this. I don't know. North, are you ready? But we've been hurt. You can't go through life without pain. You've been, we've been all hurt. Every one of us in here have been hurt in some way or another. I've been hurt. You've been hurt. And I get it. In today's culture, we have to fight for our rights. We have to fight to protect our boundaries. In today's culture, being, things are being taken away from us all the time, and life is hard, and you have to... I get that. I get that completely. And healthy boundaries, they're so important. But if we don't clearly understand the pain or look at the pain or even understand position versus posture, what happens is our boundaries will become barriers. And we'll have a pattern that is not a healthy pattern. In fact, if we don't pay attention to our patterns because of the way we've learned to survive painful seasons, that may not be the way that you want to live your life. But because we haven't paid attention to the patterns of position and the patterns that have become barriers, we shut down and we can be married for years and years and years and never have an intimacy. We can have friends too, but we have so many barriers around us. We don't have any real friends and we are still living in a culture and a society where the psychologists say it is the loneliest time ever on planet earth because we put barriers up because we don't understand the difference between position and posture. So what do you do? Our brains function with cognitive frameworks. Every one of us in this room are hearing me speak with a different framework. Your brain has been wired because of your experiences, some of them positive, some of them negative. But right now, every one of you in this room, you're going to leave this room. You may have heard the same thing. You may repeat what's on the screen. But every one of you is going to hear something else because of the framework, the way your brain is wired. So pain wires our brain. Joy wires our brain. And if we don't understand the framework, like my husband, I just picture me and my husband, we both came into our marriage with two different frameworks. We didn't even talk the same language. We are completely opposite. We didn't even like the same music. He would say something, I'd be hurt. I would be assuming he was, I didn't understand because my framework was wired differently than his framework. And what creates the pattern of thinking and the pattern of relational identity is the experiences you have. So I was sexually abused as a child, so that created a framework. Uh, my synapses would keep going down that I have to protect myself. I was told when that happened that it was because I was too pretty to be resisted. And so anytime my husband would tell me I was beautiful, shame was attached to it because of cognitive framework. And I don't have enough time to go into all of this this morning. But every one of us, if we're not careful because of pain, we put a barrier up that says, you owe me because I've been hurt. And I, I'm, this is so powerful. If you get nothing else this morning, it's really important that you get this. If you don't heal from what hurts you, you're going to bleed on people who didn't cut you. And there's two kinds of pain. And I'm going to go through this quickly. There's intentional pain. I went to bar class for the first time a couple months ago in five years, and that was intentional pain. I, when I, two days later, I couldn't get out of my car. I called my husband. I said, I'm just going to sleep in the car tonight. It's too painful to get out. I had to, I put the brush on the shelf and just moved my 
head because I couldn't lift my arm. You know what I'm talking about. Intentional pain. Intentional pain means you know you need help with whatever relationship you're in. So you're going to read a book on it. You're going to listen to a podcast. It's going to work on the inside of you. That's intentional pain. You're going to, but you can control that pain. It's the unintentional pain that we can't control, that frames our world. And if we're not careful, we'll shut us down in our relationships. And so at the bar class, because I hadn't been doing intentional pain, I hurt myself. And my back hurt after that. Int unintentional pain is when somebody says something to you and you hear it with the cognitive framework and it just digs into the wound that's already there. And, and somebody rejects you and somebody turns away from you. And so what happens is bitterness and unforgiveness begins to well up and everybody around us now owes us something because of some pain that happened 100 years ago. And what do we do about this? Well, I love what the scripture says. It says in Hebrews 11:3 that the world was framed by the word of God. So whatever experience that has framed you, the word of God takes precedence. So what has healed me and restored me in my life is knowing that I am loved beyond what I could have ever imagined. And that God isn't condemning me and shaming me, but he has broken that off of my life. The more I got into the word, the more I was transformed. And then I wasn't living as much a you owe me. But now I'm living in a posture of, Lord, help me to serve those that are around me. And I have found, this is what I have found, that when I am in a heated discussion, a lively Sicilian discussion with my husband, who is Italian as well, that if I can flip the switch and say to him, what do you need right now? How can I serve you? It disarms every tension. It disarms the argument when you're with a coworker and I, I'm Sicilian, right? So I can be thinking inside, oh my gosh, you're pushing on my boundaries, my barriers, everything. I just want to shut down or I want to punch you in the face. Is that only in, it's in the plaza. You do that, not here in the north. The north is too refined. Anyways, I, you know what I'm saying? But if I can now respond with, wait a minute, their cognitive framework is probably just as bruised and broken as mine was. So how can I serve them? And when I begin to serve them, Jesus begins to move in a situation that I wanted to be positional. So how do we do this? We're closing with this. I love what the Apostle Paul, he actually, you know, I mean, talk about a wild life. This man was killing Christians. This man was persecuting Christians and has this encounter with God and, and his whole life is transformed. And he speaks in the book of Ephesians. He actually shares a lot about it. He kind of flips the house rules of that day, which were positional, into really um, posture. The whole, I think it's chapters 5 and chapter 6, he unpacks it. It's groundbreaking. He follows up with what Jesus talked about, becoming the servant of all. And he, and he says this in Ephesians 5, 20, verse 21. And I think it's the key to all of this. He said, giving the, and the keyboard, oh, good, you're here. Can you, can you play, um, like, yes, go ahead. Play music that makes us want to serve Jesus. There you go. <laughs> no pressure. Anyways. So I think that he gives the key. So he says, you know, because I've read this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he flips it because it was a patriarchal thing and it was only women submitting to men, but he flips it. He's like, no, you submit to one another. But that's, I, it's still hard. Like, I don't want to serve you because you're being an idiot. I don't want to serve you. Do you right? Can I be honest here? But he gives the key just before that. He says in verse 20, he says, 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you give thanks, then you can submit. Oh, okay. Thank you that they're being an idiot. What does that mean? Right? Look, how do you do that? But let's continue on to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I'm going to close with this because I think this is. Like, what the heck? Give thanks. I'm not thankful right now. But Paul says this in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with, everybody say it, thanksgiving. Let your, okay, one, two, three, thanksgiving. Plaza. Perfect. <laughs> Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So where anxiety is at an all-time high in our culture. Paul says, do not be anxious for anything. I'm like, really, Paul? That's easy for you to say. You were an apostle. So somehow you've achieved some level of nirvana where you can be anxious for nothing. But you don't know what my life's like. But just to give you a little context, Paul is under Roman arrest here. And he's actually chained to a Roman soldier. So while Paul is saying, be anxious for nothing, Paul's posture was anything opposite of anxiety-free. But Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Don't let anxiety rule your world. Don't worry about your position. Don't worry about, don't let your desire for value and identity and power and influence, don't let that rule your life. I'm telling you right now, let, don't let anxiety, and he gives the key. He says, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And we're like, yeah, I'm going to turn my worries into prayers. I'm just going to pray for it. No, but this is so powerful. This is so much deeper than that. That word thanksgiving, you can put it up on the stream, screen, is the word eucharisteo. And in the middle of that word, you remember, it may be familiar, you've heard the word Eucharist. When Jesus was at the Last Supper, he held up the bread and he said, give thanks. That's the, the Greek word for Eucharist, eucharisteo. In the middle of that word is the word charis. Charis is grace. What was he saying? Be grateful for the grace. Here's Paul, chained to a Roman soldier, imprisoned for the gospel. And he's saying, be grateful for the grace. What is that telling me? When he just said, in order to submit to one another in reverence for Christ, he said, with thanksgiving. Paul understood this. You know, the word grace is mentioned 143 times throughout the Bible. 103 times. Paul's the one who said it. Paul's life was defined by the grace of God on his life. So when Paul says the pattern that he's developed in his life is not positional, but is a posture of thanksgiving for the grace of God, that causes the ability to submit to others. So this is what I want to say to you this morning, that there's not one of us in this room. Nobody owes us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. In fact, Paul said, I am the worst of all sinners. Why did he talk about the grace of God? Because he persecuted and killed Christians, and God puts them back in the environment. So I can't imagine when he was in a church service, if he recognized somebody that he had persecuted and thrown into prison. Perhaps he was in a church service, and a child of somebody that had been killed under his watch said, Paul, just want to let you know our whole family's forgiven you. And he remembers. He remembers, and the condemnation and the shame tries to come in, and he remembers the position. But Paul's like, no. 
I am grateful for the grace of God. He doesn't owe me anything. I owe him everything. And so we can say, God, I don't deserve 2,000 years ago. So when Jesus was walking down the road with his disciples and he said to them, hey, guys, in a couple days I'm going to the cross. And they're all thinking about position this morning. Your relationship with God is not based on position. Your relationship with God is based on a simple posture change. And it is simply, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. Today, I want to surrender my life to you. For relationships, guys, all week, consider in your mind, has my relationship been based on position? Am I saying to my spouse, to my kids, to my parents, to my coworkers, to my boss, you owe me? Or could you take the next seven days to consider a whole different cognitive framework of how can I serve the people around me and watch how God begins to transform your life, amen? The second thing is they have next after church. Community is the best way to be transformed. Life change happens on the context of community. Come back next week. Come every Sunday. Don't come once a month. Come every Sunday. That would be your transitional change. Perhaps you need to go to counseling. Go to counseling. Some of you in here, you're like, I'm not grateful for my spouse. I'm not grateful for... Get a journal, and every day for the next seven days, write down ten things that you're grateful about. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that they're not as bad of an idiot as I thought they would be. <laughs> if that's how you start, start. But if you start a pattern of gratefulness, psychologists say now that when people are in anxiety and stress, they tell them to write down what they're grateful for because honestly, physiologically, gratefulness releases serotonin, dopamine, and all of the chemicals you need to overcome stress. God knew it from the beginning. It's not possession. Position, possession. Hopefully you're not possessed, but it's not possession. <laughs> so I've gone over. Consider, I want you to consider the spiritual condition of your heart this morning. 2,000 years ago, he didn't have to do it, but we had a debt that we could not pay. And Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago for that debt of sin. I don't need to tell you if there's sin in your life. You already know you're struggling. You're wrestling with it. You, the shame and the condemnation is there. But what I do need to tell you this morning is there is an antidote. There is a solution. There is an answer, and it's Jesus Christ and surrendering your life to him. So with every eye closed to give privacy to the person next to you, from the left to the right, from the front to the back, and you would say to me, you know what, Donna, I, I do want it. I've been basing my relationship with God on position. Maybe that's what it is. Or perhaps you felt like you had to get it together. Like, let me get my life together this week. And then, no, you cannot get it together without him. You, he loves you so much. You can't do anything to make him love you more. There's nothing you've done that would make him love you less. He loves you. He sees you right where you are in your seat right now. And if you would say to me today, Donna, I want to surrender my life to God. I don't want it based on position. I just want to give my life to Jesus just so I know who I'm praying for. If you would lift your hand up and say, today, I want to, first time I want to put him in the number one slot. I want him to be Lord of my life. Or I see that hand. That's awesome. One, two, three. Is there anybody else? Four, five, six, seven. Anybody else? Keep your hand up. Eight. That's, come on. Anybody else? That's awesome. 
nine. That's come on, somebody give God a praise for that. That's awesome. I don't know what's happening in the plaza this morning. But let's go ahead. If you repeat after me this prayer, God, in the name of Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me and being raised from the dead. Your word says, if I believe that in my heart, confess it with my lips, that you are Lord, I will be saved. Forgive me, cleanse me, give me a hope in a future, in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, somebody give God a praise.